Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, Rachel Steyer talks about her book, Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor, published by Yale University Press in September 2023. We recorded our interview on November 28, 2023 via Zoom. Rachel Steyer, welcome to BioPodcast. It seems like Betty Friedan needs no introduction, but can you please introduce our listeners to who she is? Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be here. So Betty Friedan is an important figure in what is generally called second wave feminism. That is a term which is in dispute, but just for the purposes of brevity, I am going to use it. Second wave feminism goes roughly from 1963, when Betty Friedan wrote her groundbreaking book, The Feminine Mystique, or rather published her groundbreaking book, The Feminine Mystique, I would say until the mid 80s, and third wave feminism started with other books like Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, and so on. So Betty Friedan is a giant figure in second wave feminism. She's a writer activist, insider, polarizer. She's a journalist. She's the co-founder of the National Organization for Women, now was founded in 1966, in June of 1966. And it is one of the most important feminist organizations, if not the most important. What distinguishes it is its liberal politics. And I want to just add that unlike many of the other feminist groups from that era, women's particularly the radical feminist groups from that era, the National Organization for Women is still here. It is still active and it is still fighting. So I think that's extraordinary. And Betty founded many and co-founded many other organizations and helped at NOW and through her other organizations helped overturn many sexist laws and kick out sexist Supreme Court justices, in general, was a crusader for justice in the 20th century. And yet you've written two previous books, uh, sorry, three previous books, one on shoplifting and then two on strip teasing. <laughs> so how did you work on these books influence your work on this biography? Wow, great question. Well, the process of researching is not different, right? Whatever your subject is. I mean, it's really kind of the same. The process is identify where the archives are and the important archives are and what you need to do to go get them or to be there. And then also if you're doing reporting of people, you know, who are obviously still alive, you need to make a list of who those people are and how you're going to get to them. In my other books, Gypsy and Striptease did not really have 
reporting. I did not report for them. Well, Gypsy, that was in a series also. That was a series called the Icons of America series. It was a biographical series also for Yale University Press. So when I started Striptease, it was in the 90s, the 1990s. Okay. So because it was originally my dissertation um, at the Yale School of Drama. So at the time, uh, doing research was much different than it is now, okay, by which I mean, obviously, there was really little to no internet. If you wanted something, you had to figure out where it was, and you had to go to a card catalog. Um, I mean, I started working on striptease in Sterling Library at Yale, and just going into the stacks and looking at these old books. And then from there, you know, books that were written like in the 20s and 30s. And then from there, I proceeded to other old books. And finally, I went to the Billy Rose Theater Collection in New York, which also was quite different than, I don't know if you're familiar with that library, but back then it was much more informal than it is now. You know, now it has the things that many rare books and manuscripts archives has. It has security and you have you can only use a pencil and you have to use their paper and so on this was not the case back in the day when I first started working on striptease yeah it was you went you went in there and you asked for something and also there were these there were these really ancient guys and some gals I guess working there and you know they would go in the back and then they'd bring you for example a scrapbook of clippings, newspaper clippings from the 1920s, and they'd give it to you, like they'd put it on your desk and you'd open the scrapbook and there had not been a lot of preservation. So like the scrapbook would come up on your shirt. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Wait, I so mean- Hold on one second. So yeah. this this is a scrapbook that somebody curates of that person's well, work? Yeah, like it was, them? you know, like for example, the collection of, I don't know who- yeah, certain people collected burlesque clippings for, you know, they would clip their, they would follow their performers and, and yeah, and clip them. And then they put them in scrapbooks. And so, yeah, so I would open these and I'm like, okay, yeah. so yeah. very, a lot of hands-on work. Very super, that, that yeah. book was so hands-on. And then, but what I was getting to was in terms of the reporting. So at the time, the whole thing about that book was that there were not really, no books had really been written about striptease or burlesque at the time, except for, um, there had been one or two very theoretical books, I think, but there had not really been a history, like looking at these clippings and all that. That's, and, that's kind of freeing because then you are the groundbreaker of that subject. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Unlike little, Betty Friedan. Yeah, yes. Betty Friedan is totally different in that she's known, obviously, and- my first three books were subjects that um, were these kind of more niche subjects and no one knew anything about them. For a biography, it always involves some mix or generally involves some mix of research, archival research and reporting. And then these days, there's a lot more you can just do with internet databases like you know newspapers.com and ancestry.com. And you can really get pretty granular to use that word without leaving your house. That's a big difference from when I first started. So there are other biographies on Friedan, namely Daniel Horowitz's 1998 yes. biography, as well as Susan Oliver's uh, 2008 biography. So why should we care about her today? I think the first reason we should care is the feminine mystique. And 
The Feminine Mystique, I just would say, is an amazing book. These days, it's barely read. Most people under 40, I would say, have not read it. Or if they have read it, they've maybe read one chapter of it. And it really it really deserves more time. It, it has an enormous power. You know, it's it's a great read. Yes, it's irritating in places. Yes, it's dated in places. But overall, the argument of this, first of all, the scope and the ambition of the book but all is phenomenal, but also the argument of the book, which is basically women should have something of their own beyond being a housewife and mother, and they should be encouraged to thrive outside of having a, having a family. That is the what seems to us these days as a very modest message. That is basically the message of the feminine mystique. And I say that it's modest and it is modest, but yet at the same time, it's a humanist message. And I don't know if we're really delivering that humanist message to women these days. Dan Horowitz, I know that book very well. And then Susan Oliver's book, I know a little less well. Both of those books celebrate to some extent, The Feminine Mystique. But I think that Dan's book, especially, which is really my frame of reference more than Susan's, you know, that's been over 25 years since that book came out. And a lot has happened in feminism. Also, Betty died. We are still talking about The Feminine Mystique. You know, I was recently at a panel commemorating the 60th anniversary of The Feminine Mystique. I mean, I still read these like, impassioned critiques and attacks on the feminine mystique. Brittany Cooper, she was on this panel and she had some really interesting things to say about it. I wish that there would be a, like a bigger forum to talk about these things. I feel like it's the book that people keep coming back to, to talk about, oh, it's so embarrassing. It's so this, it's so that, it's so, it's so that. And so it's kind of something that people push against. And I think that's really important. It's really important to say, Well, what I'm thinking about right now is not like the feminine mystique because of blah, 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 but yet it owes something to the feminine mystique because of blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a cultural touchstone. I was reading somewhere that it was the most, yeah, it was the most sold book of the 20th century. I think, is that true? I don't know about that, but it was a huge bestseller. It sold millions of copies. It made Betty into a celebrity. Um, It allowed her a certain amount of financial freedom that she did not have. Prior to that, I think it certainly led to her founding the National Organization for Women. So it had personal ramifications for her as well as political ones. Sure. She was raising three small children while she was writing this book. And that's a feat in and of itself for anybody today, let alone at a time when women were really marginalized more so than they are now. How did she manage to write such a groundbreaking book with so much going on in her personal life. She had her strategies for dealing with that. One strategy was to shut the door. Like she had a an attic in her house. They had a big family house in Rockland County. So she had this attic. She would go up there. She'd close the door. Her children would knock on the door. She would not answer. Another thing was she would go into New York you know, she would commute with her husband, Carl, who was then- Yeah, she got, she basically hired help. She she hired help. She yeah. would also, she would, she would leave the children and she would commute to New York and go to the New York Public Library where she had a fellowship and she would go into one of those carols that you can get there. And there were other writers around there. And I think she fed off of that. 
She did sometimes write at the dining room table, like amidst all the hubbub, you know, so she had a certain capacity for that. So she had a variety of ways. I think it was hard though. I think it was definitely hard. You know, she talks about how hard it was. Um, Yeah. What were some of the questions that you were trying to answer at the outset of this book? What does it take to be the female leader of a feminist movement in this era? And is it even possible to do that, to start a movement and to write this kind of book without alienating other people and without being a kind of tyrannical figure? That was one question. Associated with that, I was trying to answer the question of why did people hate her so much? Like, was what was really at the bottom of some of the incredibly negative things that people said about her and also have written about her? Are those things completely exaggerated or is there is there merit to them? That was kind of another pool. Those are probably the two main things. I think you do a really great job of answering those questions. I'm not sure how long it took you to write this book, but I wondered what it was like to spend so much time with somebody who's so sort of controversial or um, complicated, right? Yeah. What was it What was it like to write about somebody so um, complicated? Yeah. I kind of identify with Betty a little bit. You know, so <laughs> there's that. I'm sort of a, con- I think of myself as being a contrarian, sort of a contrarian person. People would say things about Betty like, well, if you say why, she'll be over here with X. And I relate to that as a woman, not needing to be liked, spoke to me very strongly, whether Betty actually at heart, she secretly wanted to be liked and loved. I mean, I think we all want that. But then I also think as a woman, if you want to get something done, you have to put that aside. And I think that for me, for my generation and other people in my generation that I've spoken to, that is difficult. I I think the natural thing somehow in the air, you know, be like to be diplomatic. I mean, there are actually studies showing, you know, if you want a raise, you can't just go in there as a woman, you can't just go in there and ask for a raise, you know, you have to whatever to be some to put on some nice song and dance, whereas men can just be aggressive. And that's that. (laughs) I related to the some of the struggles that she was having um, in her life, despite the fact that they had happened. 50 years earlier or whatever, I think that that's one of the deeply um, moving and also unsettling things about feminism is that although we have made these extraordinary strides, in some ways, it sometimes feels like we have not made extraordinary strides. (laughs) In fact, we're stalled, or we have even had setbacks. And so, um, so just on a personal level, I felt like I identified with her. And I felt a little bit protective of her. As I was reading it, there were so many aha moments where when you talk about Betty Friedan as a relatable character today, I looked at how the media portrayed her looks or her as a person, the way they described her and how cruel they were. And then I think about, you know, just in the last 20 years or so, how the media still talks about women in one way, the cruelty that still exists Mm -hmm. around being a woman and how we Mm -hmm. have to contort ourselves that came into play as I was reading this book. What led you to write her story? It was a commission. First of all, so I was asked to do it. I started the book in 2016. However, prior to that, 
the story really goes back to 2013. So 10 years ago, it was the 50th anniversary of the feminine mystique. And I was at the time I was on sabbatical. And when I'm on sabbatical, what I have done historically is just really like dive into freelance work and just like get as much freelance work as I can and just really. So I had this one assignment that was write something about the 50th anniversary of the feminine mystique. And then um, also like Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, had just come out that same year, 2013. And there are a number of other books by younger women that had come out. And so the assignment was to compare, write about Betty's book in conversation with these other books. At the time, I had never read The Feminine Mystique, okay, because I also, you know, (laughs) I was not a women and gender studies major in college and uh, nor in graduate school. I kind of fall in between second and third wave feminism. I sort of maybe thought of myself until recently, (laughs) until working on this book as more of a third wave feminist. Um, So I start working on it and I was blown away by The Feminine Mystique. And then I start reading the other books. And I realized that these other books hardly mention Betty at all. Although the ideas are the grandchildren of Betty, Betty's, some of Betty's ideas, or they're in, you know, they're in dialogue, but they're in dialogue manque, right? Like they don't mention, well, this idea comes from Betty. So that was the piece I wrote. It was that, you know, this is sort of the problem with feminism is that, we don't, there's no sense of history. And some of these ideas came from over here and we have to, you know, we have to make these connections and people really liked the piece. And a little while later, I was asked (laughs) to write this biography of Betty Friedan, which I had never, you know, I had never thought of. Because as you pointed out, my first book, my first three books were uh, on these other kinds of subjects. So at first I I was not sure I wanted to do it, you know, honestly, because I had these other projects in mind and blah, blah, blah. But then I tried, I wrote a proposal and I really enjoyed doing that, you know, boom, I was sort of like off. In what ways did she work with the Black community during the establishment of the National Organization for Women? The Feminine Mystique was amazingly popular and it allowed a lot of women to feel like they were not alone. They were not suffering alone. However, it was also criticized from the very moment of its publication for not including working class women and black women. I think Gerda Lerner, the scholar Gerda Lerner was the first person to make this critique. And I've never read Betty's replying to Gerda Lerner's critique. However, In my mind, Betty replied, not by replying in an epistolary form, but rather by working on her second book, which was supposed to be about women post-feminine mystique. And it was a much broader project. It deliberately went out and tried to include Black women and working class women. The subject of this book was like women who were working at NASA women who were working in hotels, women who were working on airplanes, whatever. Among those women, there were many, many Black women. However, (laughs) Betty never finished that book. And I believe that if she had finished that book and if she had published that book, she would have a much different reputation than she does today. What happened instead was that the Civil Rights Act passed and Betty, Betty and others, not just Betty, but others began to get very impatient, like where's the women's revolution? 
what's going on here? So you began to think that a book was not the thing, that there had to be a movement, there had to be an organization. Other women agreed, and many other women were working towards this goal, including Polly Murray. They were friends. They were more than just colleagues or comrades. Uh, Polly Murray was a, an act, a civil rights activist, and, and a, you know, an amazing figure. So Betty was in conversation with Polly. How can we get women's rights? How can we have women's rights and civil rights be in dialogue? And in the mission statement of now, this is addressed. If you look at the original mission statement of now, it, it talks about black women. Betty, in addition to everything I'm saying, she reached out to a lot of Black civil rights leaders to try and kind of get them interested in now. They were not so interested. They had their own thing that they were doing. That was one thing. Another thing, as you know from reading the book, I mean, Betty had certain points of view about Black power feminism and about Stokely Carmichael and people like that. Although she identified very strongly with Martin Luther King Jr., she worried that some of the other leaders and their, I don't know what I would call it, their anti-white rhetoric, she worried that that would be translated to the women's movement into an anti-male rhetoric and that that would be toxic to the women's movement. Okay, so as a, you know, as a result of this, I'm trying to really condense things here. I mean, as a result of this, I think Betty struggled to find a language for the women's movement that did not just repeat what civil rights was doing. Like in the in 68 and 69, for example, a protest that the National Organization for Women did was desegregation. You know, it was like the desegregation, but it was desegregation. Okay. So they would go to these all-male clubs and they would sit in the all-male clubs, like at the Oak Room in New York or many, many other places. And they would do that until, um, you know, somebody noticed or some newspaper noticed. Some people thought that those protests were, you know, derivative, elitist, et cetera, et cetera. Betty in the in the 68, 69, like while Betty was president of the National Organization for Women, she was president for four years from 66 to 69. She was struggling to try and figure out how to take the lessons that the civil rights movement had learned and apply them to the women's movement. And I don't think it completely worked. And I don't think she found a language, a unique language for the women's movement that was persuasive. I think that's part of the reason why she was not as successful as she could been could have been. I mean, I don't know if anyone could have done that, but I think, you know, just from having studied her speeches, she borrows very heavily from the language of civil rights. You know, I think people looked at that and they were like, well, wait a sec, women are not enslaved. They were not enslaved. That's different. You know, marriage is different from having been enslaved and the history of slavery. And I think that some people thought, oh, that discredits, that's a discredit to the women's movement. Yeah. And she conflated a few things. There was something about the Holocaust that she described. She described women as walking. Yeah, the comfortable concentration camp. (laughs) That's that's in the feminine mystique. That's that's another very controversial thing where she, she she, she, she was a very controversial figure. And I, this phrase kept coming up 
well-behaved women rarely make history. And she definitely was what you would say a disruptor. She was, um, she was not playing one game, you know, mm-hmm. and to her detriment, to your original point, this idea of getting a women's movement off the ground, how do you do that? You know, the question, it's not a pretty picture in a lot of ways. There is no straight line in the civil rights movement. There is no straight line in the feminist movement. There is no straight line in this great American experiment. Lots of mistakes are made along the way, but every movement needs a parent, as flawed as they might be. Where are the Betty Friedan archives? Well, some of them are at the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe, Harvard. Then there's, an, you know, Smith. I mean, there's other repositories, lesser repositories. Like a lot of um, universities have collections, smaller collections from the National Organization for Women that have Betty-related material. For example, Wayne State is one of them, University of Wisconsin is another one. So there's 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 really quite a lot of Betty material all over, but the, the biggest chunk is at the Schlesinger. What was the most surprising thing that you learned in the archives or during your research process about Betty Friedan and the movement? Actually, maybe one of the most surprising things to me was just Betty's calendar from starting now and just like, how full the calendar was like in terms of because one of her jobs early on was to go to different American cities and start a chapter of now. And so she'd be here one day and here another day and here another day. And just like her, the energy that that must have taken to keep that up, that was surprising. I mean, the extent to which she was involved in Esalen in 1969 and into this really into the 70s i knew this and originally the other biography that came out in 1998 is by a journalist judith hennessy and she had like all of her notes her typed notes which is like a thousand pages of notes basically and so i had access to that and that was phenomenal that gave me a lot of leads um because obviously she couldn't fit everything in the book and then there were some things in the notes that people didn't really want to talk about well like this Esalen thing and how involved betty was in she was particularly under the sway of this one uh psychologist virginia satir that was much more influential on Betty in the 70s. And it was much more responsible for Betty kind of pivoting away from the mainstream feminist movement um, than people realize. I mean, certainly than I realized. To what extent were you in contact with Betty's three children for this book? Yeah, I interviewed all of them uh, several times. And... (laughs) What was that like? Um, I mean, I think they're all really interesting, accomplished people. They had very interesting things to say about their mother. Daniel was born in 1947, I believe. And Jonathan, I believe, was born in like 1948, I think. But then Emily was born in 1956. So really, Emily was the one who I think experienced the most her mother's extraordinary arc 
you know, the change from being, <laughs> you're a housewife, you know, you're kind of doing freelance writing and then you have the door closed, but then boom, you're a celebrity, right? That transformation, I think, and I think that was very hard. I think it was hardest on Emily because the boys were already like in high school and they college. were people, yeah. They were, yeah, they were already right. people, but Emily was younger. There's a famous story about how when I think when Emily went to college, she said publicly she was not a feminist. And that, of course, was widely quoted. And then, you know, mostly to discredit Betty, unfortunately. But then later, Emily retracted that. And, you know, going to med school, she realized that still more needed to be done, obviously, and and what her mother had accomplished. So, you know, it's the simple thing, of, you know, when you're 18, 19, whatever you do, a lot of women have tumultuous relationships with their mothers, certainly. Then when you get over, good older, hopefully, it quiets down a little bit. It quiets down just partly because you start to have your own life and you're less attached to your parent. And Betty was a gigantic personality, although she was very tiny. She's gigantic figure, you know. You're a professor, you're a biographer, you've written four books. You strike me as a very ambitious and <laughs> hardworking and busy person. What do you do for self-care? That's a good question. Well, I have a dog. Um, <laughs> he's my self-care, but I walk the dog a lot. I live right near a park and the lake. We go out there, your mind goes off. I, I was doing more before the book came out, but now the basic things are, you know, music and getting outside in nature, very important. Walking, yoga. I have a yoga practice every day at my house. That's amazing. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Rachel Steyer about her book, Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor. It was published by Yale University Press in September 2023. This interview was recorded via Zoom on November 28, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.